The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for his kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow our Facebook page and visit shadygrovepca.org. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. It's in your bulletin. You can also find it in your apps or in your Bible. But we've been looking at the Beatitudes, and now Jesus follows up with that in the Sermon on the Mount and says, you're the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Let's pray together. Father, we ask now that, Lord, you'd help us not only to understand this word, but to see its significance for our influence, Lord, in this world and where you have placed us. And may we not lose heart or be discouraged, but rather encouraged from this very text. And pray that your spirit would apply it to us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you've been listening to me speak about the kingdom uh, last few weeks as we've been in this Sermon on the Mount, I've been referring to it as an invasion and I've been borrowing from C.S. Lewis's uh, book in Mere Christianity where he has this quote where he says, enemy occupied territory, that is what this world is. And Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. You might say landed in disguise, in disguise and is calling us to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. You see, we're part of a coup. We're part of the overthrow of a government. And this is not an earthly government or power, but a spiritual government of the devil himself. The king of heaven has come down. And this long-awaited Messiah Jesus has come to save his people from their sins by his death and resurrection. But that's not all that he came to do. He came ushering in his new kingdom. The kingdom is here. And it is growing. And we live in what theologians refer to as the already, not yet, tension. John the Baptist and Jesus both began their preaching with repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. This is the already part of the kingdom. You remember the Apostle Paul said the kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking but of righteousness, joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. And that's something you experience right now. That's the kingdom and it's now. Uh, but in its not yet, Paul, I was reading this week in Acts 14 where Paul had been stoned in Lystra and in a city and he was dragged out of the city and left for dead. And you know what it says? He got back up and went back into the city. Would you go back after they just hit you with 3,000 stones? Well, he went back into the city and then he, then he left and went to another city. And then he came back to Lystra, 
back to the very city that stoned him, and he wanted to encourage the believers there. And he, he gave them this quote that we use all the time. Through many tribulations, you must enter the kingdom of God. How do you think that would have fallen on the people that heard that after looking at all the bruises from all the, the rocks that had just pelted him? He went to encourage them, but he was telling them through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God that it's still something future. There's still this entrance that's still going to take place. Okay? And so that's the not yet aspect. And you remember in Hebrews 2, the writer's writing and he says, at present... We do not yet see everything in subjection to him, to Jesus. And yet Christ is ruling from heaven at the right hand of God. His will is being done perfectly there. And we're praying that it will be more and more of a reality here. That's the already not yet tension. And so as you think about that, you can't separate verses 13 to 16 of Matthew 5 from the first 12 verses. The way that you are salt and light is by the Beatitudes of living out the Beatitudes. When we have the attitude of the Beatitudes and this posture, this is how we are salt and light in the world. And so the Beatitudes are the posture of how we enter the kingdom. You remember we talked about how you come entering poor in spirit, recognizing our our spiritual poverty, our, our need for Jesus, and then mourning, and then coming meekly, humbly, and then hungering and thirsting for righteousness. That's how we enter the kingdom, but as Paul says in Colossians, as you receive Christ the Lord, so now walk in him. That isn't, you, all of a sudden we, we start to realize, wait a minute, the door is now the hallway. Just as Jesus said in Revelation 2 to the church in Ephesus, repent and do the things you did at first. How did you enter the kingdom? Well, I, I, I was broken of my sin. Well, are you still ever broken by your sin? Do you still come humbly and see your, your need? It's, these are all, Beatitudes are all present tense. They don't say blessed were and they don't say blessed will be. They say blessed are. And this is how we're to come today. The Beatitudes are the kingdom lifestyle. And so as we come to God, we see that apart from God, we have no good thing, Psalm 16, too, because we're poor in spirit, we're spiritually bankrupt, and nothing in our hands we bring, but simply to the cross we cling. We mourn over the decadence of this world, over its brokenness and the, the sin that we see and disease and then even things like death that break our hearts and we mourn. And we come meekly to God and we accept his, his providence or his care over all things, that he's working them somehow for good. And in meekness, meekness, we accept humbly his rule over us and we continually say, not my will, Lord, but your will be done. And when we do this, we are light shining in the darkness. And then as we come with a new hunger as children of God, hungering and craving for him, we're no longer finding our hunger from the likes that we might get on Instagram or the likes or just from finding a spouse or having children or having grandchildren or getting accepted into that school or getting that degree or getting that promotion or finally retiring. There's a hunger and a thirst that to be in his presence is fullness of joy and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. And this hunger is like a newborn baby longs for the milk, it's intense. And we have this new hunger for the word of God more than seeing the new and next Marvel movie. 
We hunger for this world to be made right. And what we're doing when we do that is we're a light shining in the darkness because we have a hunger and a thirst that shows the world where their hunger and thirst should be. And as we have received mercy from God of forgiveness of our sins and, and how he has washed us with his blood, our hearts are now big with compassion and we're merciful to others, forgiving them from the heart and forbearing with their weaknesses, knowing how weak we are too. And we forgive hurtful and painful wounds that get afflicted upon us and we become like ducks, letting the water just wash over our backs we develop thick skin and we're mercifully, continually showing mercy to others. And now we stop in a world that rushes, that rushes right past the poor guy on the road to Jericho who's been left for dead. We're now compelled to show mercy in big and beautiful ways. And when we do this, we are a light shining in the darkness. We're now pure in heart Christians. We've been purified by the blood of Jesus. Our sins have been washed. And now we have fellowship with one another. And we walk in the light as he is in the light. And our hearts now have a sincere love for the brothers. Sincere love for the church. And we don't have ulterior motives to do what we do. We want the best for others. And we help others while dying to the motivation of trying to look good before others or doing our good work so that others may see us and somehow lift us up rather than lifting Christ up. We're now pure in heart and we don't want to soil this relationship with God and, and others by the me monster getting in the way. We want him to get the glory. We're not doing it for the money, the promotion, the perks, but most of all, to be noticed. We die to that. And when we live like this, we shine like lights shining in the darkness. You see, those who love Jesus and his church are now called to live in a manner worthy of the calling to which they've been called, with all humility, gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bonds of peace. We are now peacemakers. We work against discord and disharmony and disunity at, at every level. And we are now the ones who work as peacemakers in the world, bringing divided parties together, not saying things that are divisive or doing things that hurt the body because loose lips sink ships. Rather, we strive together for the good and the peace of others. We work together for the good and the health of our family, the health of the company, the health of the organization. We don't get caught up in the factions and controversies and we take our fire hose and we put out the fires of strife and jealousy so as to maintain the shalom as that's what Christ did for us and bringing us to himself, making peace for us when we were rebels and now we are compelled not to be peace fakers or peace breakers, but peacemakers. And when we live like this, we shine like lights shining in the darkness. And last but not least, we're called to speak the truth in love. And love, love uh, we have to love others enough with the courage to tell them the truth, with gentleness and respect. And there's times where we will be persecuted for righteousness' sake, when we don't fall in line with the world system that claims tolerance on every level. Tolerance, tolerance, tolerance. And yet they are intolerant to anything that isn't tolerant. And they don't see that tolerance isn't itself an absolute worldview and a very religious belief system indeed. And we come delivering a message from the king about his kingdom and that he's come 
and it's coming again. You see, Dallas Willard in his book, Divine Conspiracy, he says this. He says, you may think the comparison rather rude or in some respects it is, but it will help us understand Jesus' basic message about the kingdom of the heavens if we pause to reflect on those farmers who in effect heard the message, repent for electricity is at hand. Repent and turn from those kerosene lamps and lanterns, their ice boxes and cellars, their scrub boards and rug beaters, their woman-powered sewing machines and their radios with dry cell batteries. You see, in the analogy, the farmers are being called to repent and change their way radically to a whole new way of life. Jesus is doing the very same thing, calling us to repent for his kingdom is at hand. And as Dallas Wildred says, every one of us has a kingdom or a queendom or a government, a realm that is uniquely our own, where our choice determines what happens. Here's a truth that reaches into the deepest part of what it is to be a person. Some may think it should not be so. John Calvin rather remarked balefully, everybody flatters himself and carries a kingdom in his breast. Our kingdom is simply the range of our effective will. Whatever we genuinely have the say over is our kingdom. And our having the say over something is precisely what places it within our kingdom. In creating human beings, God made them to rule, to reign, to have dominion in a limited sphere. Only so can they be persons. Well, now Christ has come and said, repent for the kingdom is at hand. That all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. And now we're to let him rule and reign over us. And then all of our kingdom influence is used to bring honor and glory to the king of which we live in his kingdom. When we bring that news to bear, not all gladly receive it. Not all lay down their weapons and wave the white surrender flag. Some are very hostile to this message and we will be persecuted and hated as his ambassadors. And Jesus says when that happens, blessed are you, for great is your reward in heaven. Your stock goes up in heaven. And when we live like this, we're like light shining in the darkness. Many of you probably heard the, the, the myth or the naval legend, and many think it originated from the Coast Guard poking fun at the Navy. And the urban legend has lots of variation, but here's a sample of one of them. And it's a, um, this is off of the coast of Newfoundland, and it's a radio conversation. And the American says, please divert your course 15 degrees to the north to avoid a collision. And the Canadians respond, recommend you divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. And the American says, this is the captain of a U.S. Navy ship. I say again, divert your course. And the Canadian says, no, again, I say divert your course. And the American says, for this is an aircraft carrier, the USS Lincoln, the second largest ship in the United States Atlantic Fleet. We are accompanied by three destroyers, three cruisers, and numerous support vessels. I demand that you change your course 15 degrees north. That's five degrees north, or countermeasures will be undertaken to ensure the safety of this ship. And the Canadians respond, this is a lighthouse. Your call. Now, it's a funny story, but Christians are to be the lighthouse. And we're telling the world, change course, change course. And the world is telling us, no, no, you change course, you change course. And we're as lighthouses saying, you're going to be dashed upon the rocks if you don't change course. Lighthouses protect ships from crashing, yet sometimes this message is not received well. 
During the reign of Bloody Mary in England, 1600s, she put over 300 Protestants to death. Her main way to do it was to burn them at the stake. There were two great English reformers who were burned together at the stake, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley. And Hugh was a very old man, and Ridley was much younger. And as they were about to be burned, before they placed the, the fire to the sticks, Hugh said this, Play the man, Master Ridley. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. They were lights shining in the universe. You see, when Christians live out these beatitudes and embrace them as a lifestyle, we are, as Jesus said, salt and light in the world. You're not commanded here to be salt and light because you are salt and light. That's an indicative, not an imperative. And salt and light, they tend to fix problems, do they not? Salt is needed in a world without freezers, in a world without ice cubes, in a world without ice makers. Salt is essential to keep food from rotting. That's what it was for. Salt was needed as a preservative. The purpose of the salt is to rub it into the meat, to preserve it against those agencies that are tending to its putrefaction. And we're to be rubbed into the workplace, rubbed into your, your neighborhood, rubbed into your offices and into your cubicles and into your families, rubbing it out because, rubbing it in because otherwise it's going to what? It's just going to continue to rot. And you think, well, this is so frustrating. I just want to check out of here. Well, the interesting thing is I didn't show from these pictures that were on the, uh, I was looking at earlier from space. Do you know what city shines the light, the brightest scientists say or astronauts say from space? They say the city that shines the brightest is Las Vegas. Do you know why? What is around Las Vegas? Nothing. It's, it's in the desert. And so with all those casinos stripping, it's extra, you know, lit up. It's not, the, the brightest city is actually Hong Kong. But the reason that Las Vegas shines the brightest is because of the darkness of the desert. And so when you shine in a dark place, you will shine all the brighter. And so don't be discouraged that the place you're working in is so difficult and that the family you've been placed in is so difficult and this neighborhood that you're living in just seems to be declining. It just seems to be going down the tubes, so you might think. Or wherever the Lord has put you, he's put you there to be salt rubbed into the meat. And then light is needed, especially at night and in the dark. With our light, we illuminate the darkness. Otherwise, it's just a darkness of depravity, of dullness, and despair. And so Christians, our place, what Jesus is getting at, is this is your place in the world. It's to retard corruption and to reveal light. That is your job. Light is needed for guidance. Light is needed for exposure. Light is needed to see. And without it, there's just utter darkness. You see, Jesus is implicitly saying that the world is rotten and that the world is dark. And so Christians are to be salt and light. And that's where our influence is used. As we bring the revelation of God's truth and his plan and his love and his mercy, this is a light that brings hope in the midst of the darkness. C.S. Lewis has this great quote where he says, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen, S-U-N. Not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. We love that quote. 
What if people could say that about us? They believe our gospel not only because we tell them the good news, but because we see it demonstrated in every area of our life, just like the sun gives light to the whole earth. Martin Lloyd-Jones said the glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. It is then that the world is made to listen to her message, though they may hate it at first. Otherwise, if we Christians are indistinguishable from non-Christians, we are useless. We're like the salt that's to be thrown out and just trampled on by men, is what Jesus is saying. John Stott, in his book's involvement, he says there's only two responses of Christians towards the world. It's either escape or engagement. Where are you this morning? Stott says escape means to turn our backs on the world in rejection, washing our hands of it, kind of like Pontius Pilate. But engagement means turning our faces to the world in compassion, getting our hands dirty, sore, and worn in its service, and feeling deep within us the stirring of the love of God with which, which cannot be con- contained. To try to improve society is not worldliness but love. To wash your hands of society is not love, but worldliness. What did Jesus pray in John 17? Not that we'd be taken out of the world, but that we would be sent into the world and kept from the evil one, sanctified by his his word and sent into the world to show Christ to the world through our unity and through our joy. We can't say, as the song says, you can have all this world, just give me Jesus. There's a truth in that, but part of that is saying, you know, just let the world go to hell in a handbasket. I just want Jesus. Take me out of here. I'm a premillennialist, and I can't wait for the Lord to come. It's all bad news anyway. The Lord's just going to come. We're all going to lose. There's a lot of people that think like that. Why polish the, the brass on the sinking Titanic? Do you know what Tony Evans said to that? His response was, well, why do you, do- why do you jog and why do you exercise? You're going to die. And yet you implicitly know that exercise has some physical value to it, so you do it. Well, why are we preserving culture? Because we know implicitly that it has value. As image bearers of God, as we bring dominion in these areas where God has called us to do. As salt, we are to preserve the culture. And as light, we know that our light is a reflected light. We are not the light. Christ is ultimately the light. He's the sunlight. We are the moonlight. We are the reflected light. And we are pointing others to the true light. We're like John. I'm not the one. (laughs) He's the one to come. He must become greater. I must become less. But how do those glow-in-the-dark things work? The longer you leave them in the light, then the longer they glow in the night. That's how they work. Well, how are we going to work? Just like that. So what does it look like? What's this look like? Well, D.A. Carson put it like this. Such Christians that are living like this refuse to rob their employers by being lazy on the job or rob their employees by succumbing to greed and stinginess. They're the first to help a colleague in difficulty and last to return a barbed reply. They honestly desire the advancement of the other's interest and honestly dislike smutty humor. Transparent in their honesty, genuine in their concern, they reject both the easy answer of the doctrinaire politician and the laissez-faire stance of the selfish secular man. They're meek in personal demeanor, they are bold in righteous pursuits. 
You see, missions is very important. And it's good to go to Fairmont and Honduras and other places, but if you're a believer, you're in full-time Christian service. We need Christians to be salt and light in the public schools, in government, in the courts, in the educational systems, in business, in the military, on our sports teams, on the football team, and the soccer team, and in the arts, and into history, for the preservation and seasoning, and sometimes leading, like Joseph in the courts of Pharaoh, Daniel in the courts of Nebuchadnezzar, Nehemiah in the court of Artaxerxes, John the Baptist in the court of Herod, and Esther in the court of Ahasuerus. We are not in the world, or we're in the world, but not of the world. We're like the boat. The boat does well when it's not taken in water or when it's pulled up on a thing and out of the water, but when it's on top of the water doing what it was made to do. We're to be in that water, but not full of it. And you don't have to be grown-up children to live like this. I came across this story this week from Kent Hughes. He tells a story about his daughter, Holly, that when she was in the first grade, she weakly approached her teacher, Mrs. Smith, and said, Mrs. Smith, will you come to church? And then on Monday morning, Holly would approach her and say, Mrs. Smith, you didn't come to church. And after a while of hearing this, guess what? Mrs. Smith came to church. And she said she, he says she couldn't resist those big, sad, brown eyes. And finally she came and came again, and she came to know Jesus. And today, she is a remarkable, radiant sunbeam herself. Because Holly said to her first grade teacher, will you come to church? It's not that hard, but sometimes it it does feel very hard. I want to close with an illustration. I'm a sucker for stories. And uh, this, I don't know if anybody's read the Indianapolis uh, story. It's a great book. True story of what happened in World War II. But in July 1945, the USS Indianapolis, which was a heavy cruiser ship of the U.S. Navy, It contained a top-secret high-speed delivery trip to deliver parts of Little Boy, which was the first nuclear weapon ever used in combat. And they delivered this to the United States Air Force Base on the island of Tinian, and they subsequently departed for the Philippines on training duty. And at 12.15 a.m. on July 30th, 1945, the ship was struck on her starboard side by two torpedoes shot from a Japanese sub, and the USS Indianapolis, there's the picture of it, she sank in 12 minutes, okay? And there was almost 1,195 men were on board, and approximately 300 went down with the ship. And the remaining 890 went into the water with very few lifeboats, and many didn't even have life jackets, and they faced extreme exposure, dehydration, saltwater poisoning, and the most horrific shark attacks. This was the greatest shark attack on humans ever. Uh, While stranded in the open ocean with few lifeboats and very few supplies of water and food. And so part of the problem was the Navy didn't get communications that the ship had been sunk. And so three and a half days later, this U.S. plane was just on routine patrol and just so happened to be flying by day and looked directly down and sees all these people on the water. And so by happenstance, they discovered this uh, big problem. 
And so only 316 people survived, but the survival story was quite amazing because instantly what happened was they sent a, what they call uh, Dumbo, which is a big uh, bird, and this thing is not, they're under strict orders not to land this plane on the ocean. And the guy uh, took a vote on, on the, with the people on board saying, we've got to land because these people are going to die. And they landed on the back of a three-foot swell. And they landed this plane. And they saved 56 people by using parachute cords and tying them to the wings. The plane wasn't able to fly after this, but it was just to get the people out of the water. Well, then, the exciting part, I'm just going to read directly from the book, is this, this boat called the USS Doyle. It sliced through the sea with an urgency of a bullet. Over the radio, Claytor had heard that Marx collected more than 50 men. So that was the Dumbo plane. And this meant that there were at least 100 men still in the water in the blackest of nights. And Claytor imagined their terror. How many would be lost to colder sharks? How many would, be, would simply give up hope? At 10.42 p.m., Claytor issued an order that no man aboard had ever heard before. Turn on the searchlight and point it at the sky. And Claytor's officers and sailors were stunned. At night, the crew of a warship made a religion of keeping it dark, skulking around under dim red lights, even hiding the orange glimmer of their cigarettes. And some on the bridge were aware of Mark's warning about possible submarines in the area. And allowing any light to escape the ship was like painting her with a bullseye for the enemy. Still, they understood. Doyle was more than an hour away from her survivors, and Claytor, Claytor wanted the men in the water to see the light, dig deep, and hang on just a little longer. A sailor complied with the skipper's orders and the ship's 24-inch searchlight streamed skyward, piercing the night with a perfect tower of brilliant white. Standing topside, Charles Doyle gazed up at this unprecedented beacon and hair stood on the back of his neck. Like the rest of his crew, he trusted his captain, but he also knew for the first time in his Navy service, his ship had just become the brightest target in the Pacific. When Mark saw Doyle's light on the southern horizon, he decided he had never seen a finer example of American courage. Claytor knew there might be an enemy subs. Marks had told him so himself, and yet the Doyle captain had resolutely trained his searchlight at the sky. The reaction on the Dumbo was electrifying. Look, Mark said to the men crying for water and clinging to life. The light they saw was a destroyer on its way. There was water on board and doctors. Rescue was coming soon. And as he watched, joy and relief washed across their faces. They settled back against the bulkheads and gazed upon the lovely night, now certain of their salvation. Doyle's light had a similar effect on men still in the water. Lebo and the Hirschberger's group had dwindled from 130 to 35 and had almost given up hope. But when Hirschberger saw the luminous tower, he realized for the first time he was going to make it. And L.T. Cox's group began with about 30 men, and Cox had watched two-thirds of them die. Then when he saw Mark's plane taxi past at a distance, he assumed that he and the rest of his group were doomed. But when he saw Doyle's beacon, it was though a light switched on in heaven, and around him fresh fire surged in the men, a sudden burning will to live. The light made all the difference for these guys still in the water. May God give us the courage that we are salt and light. We are to be this city set on a hill. And yes, you're in enemy territory and you may get torpedoes shot at you. 
but may we not be afraid to be shot at as we live for Jesus in word and in deed, knowing that we are giving hope to others who are dying. Let's pray. Lord, fill us with your spirit. May we not be ashamed of the gospel. Give us courage, give us love and compassion. We thank you that we are in the light because of you who brought us out of darkness into your marvelous light that we might declare the praises of God. So we thank you. Amen.